Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. Product Startup, Episode 9. Welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step-by-step with your host, Philip Valitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. In this last episode, we heard from Doug Marshall, the founder of the Game Face Company. He creates temporary face tattoos and masks that peel off using FDA-approved materials made in the U.S. Doug talked to us about the behind-the-scenes details of Shark Tank and his partnership with Lori Grenner and Mark Cuban. Before I get into today's episode, I wanted to thank RJMan83, who left the review on iTunes. Very relevant for physical product startups. Great podcast for anyone starting a business around a physical product. Philip gets into helpful tactical details with guests that are hard to find anywhere else. Keep it up. Hey, thanks a lot, RJMan83. I don't get a lot of feedback on the show, so I really appreciate your thoughts. And now on to the show. In today's episode, I'm joined by Gordon Firemark, an attorney devoted to representing creative and business people in the media. He's the producer and host of Entertainment Law Update podcast, and we talk about the many legal issues faced by small business owners, including non-disclosure agreements and contracts, implied endorsements and fair use in advertising, trade secrets, patents, trademarks, and copyrights. So on to the show. Hi, Gordon. Thanks for coming on the show today. Philip, hi. Thanks for having me. So can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your experience? Well, I am by practice, uh, by, by profession, I should say, I am an attorney. I work in the entertainment industry on the transactional side, which means the only time I ever go to court is when I'm testifying as a witness or, uh, <laughs> or something like, or a, a party in a lawsuit, I suppose. Uh, fortunately that hasn't happened. I, I, uh, help folks in the, in and around the entertainment industries, uh, with their businesses. And, uh, that is a very creative business, of course. And, um, so that puts me, you know, in the, uh, at the nexus of things like intellectual property and contracts and, and, uh, also just a very crazy industry. And, um, and uh, I love to help creative people with the business sides of their thing and help uh, business folks with staying in touch with their creativity. That's right. And you've got a podcast yourself. I have several podcasts. The Entertainment Law Update is the one where I and another lawyer do a monthly roundup of uh, of uh, legal stories and news and around the entertainment industry. Uh, I also have an Asked and Answered podcast, which is really just the audio track of a YouTube channel that I have that... Uh, features me answering common questions that come from my listeners and viewers. And then there's one targeted at lawyers who want to use podcasting as a marketing tool for their businesses called the Law Podcasting Podcast. Great. Well, we'll definitely link to those in the show notes and we can talk about them near the end of the show. Awesome. Well, let's start with something really basic. When I talk to people that are building products for the first time, usually they're worried about sharing their ideas and they say, should I sign an NDA or will you sign this NDA with me? My experience as an engineer is that the NDAs aren't really worth much because they're tough to enforce because it's hard to prove that someone actually violated the terms of an NDA and, and broke confidentiality. What is your perspective on that? 
Well, you know, uh, NDAs are, they have some value, but, but I think you're right. Much of the time it comes down to a question of does the evidence support a claim that there was a breach? And more, I think the real value of an NDA is that it formalizes the relationship and puts everybody on notice that, Hey, we're serious about our stuff here. So don't steal it. Don't, don't be casual about it. Um, actually in the entertainment industry, ideas are the, you know, that's, that's the, the way business is transacted. And so, um, uh, interestingly, it's very rare to see formal non-disclosure agreements in the entertainment industry. The part of the reason is the studios and the production companies and producers um, have the bargaining power to just say, no, give us your idea or not, but we're not going to sign anything. And in fact, many of them use the, the inverse, which is a submission agreement that basically says – you're submitting it to us. We're going to take a look. We may have all, something almost identical already in development, so we're not making you any promises whatsoever. Um, and even in that circumstance, people generally intend to do right by each other. And the the real key in protecting yourself is only do business with people, only contemplate doing business with people you feel you can trust and who have a decent reputation. If somebody's a slime ball to others, they're going to be a slime ball to you too. Right. Absolutely. And it, maybe even if you approach the relationship in a antagonistic way, then that's yeah. kind of setting the stage for what you expect to happen. That's true. No, yeah. that's interesting. I've also heard that many investors on the you know, product development or on the, on the startup side won't sign an NDA with you because they don't want to be shackled to, or maybe opened up to a lawsuit yeah. in the future. If, if a piece of your idea gets incorporated in a, into something else unintentionally, just because it's a part of their consciousness and now it's turned into something. That's so true. And, and it's the same thing in the movie business. You know, the ideas are constantly in play and in motion and and it isn't at all unheard of to have the same idea materialize and be expressed in a couple of different ways almost simultaneously you may remember maybe you don't you're younger than i am but you know uh, about 20 25 years ago there were three volcano movies the same summer uh, where the volcano is blowing up under the city basically and right. people are running for their lives three separate movies with different storylines but the the premise was the same and you know it was nobody's fault it just was the way it came out the answer is, you know, do business with reputable people and be good to one another. <laughs> yeah, no, and I totally agree with that. I personally try to not walk into any relationship and signing an agreement from the get go. Mm -hmm. Maybe the next step, whenever you're working with a supplier or someone that's a partner that you're trying to do business with is maybe need to write something down if you're agreeing to terms or there's an exchange in money. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the point that people should look to? put something down on paper? Well, you know, Phil, the contracts are really very easy to make and we make them all the time every day and, and we don't even think about it. And so sometimes we, we make it a bigger deal than it needs to be in our minds when we start getting into a business relationship. So nowadays we do a lot of things back and forth by email where I'll say, Hey, you know, what's your price for X, Y, Z? And you say, it's this much. I go, Oh, that's too much. How about this? And you know, you're having a negotiation and when everybody says, okay, done, we have a contract. We have an agreement. Now, it's not a formal memorialization of the terms of the deal in a single document, sure. you know, stapled together and signed in blue ink, but we still have a contract. There are only a certain handful of kinds of contracts that must be in writing in, in a signed document like I described. The rest of the time, we, we rely on these these informal relationships, these informal things, and, and those emails become the evidence if there is ever a, a breach of contract. Now, that not with all that said... I do believe that good contracts make for good business partners, just like good fences make good neighbors. 
it sets out the boundaries and, and the expectations of the partners. And so it is worthwhile to sit down and really think about all of the, the parameters of a deal. And that's where, frankly, using a lawyer sometimes is beneficial because let's face it, the lawyers are doing this every day and you may be doing this kind of a contract once every six years. So sure. um, reaching out to somebody who has the frame of reference to to think about the terms that might otherwise be overlooked and get it down in a document. But really, most of the time we can write our own simple contracts. You know, what's the, what's the price? What's the, what's the service being rendered or the goods being transferred and when, and, uh, you know, answer the who, what, where, when, how, and why, and you've got a contract. Yeah. No. And that totally makes sense. I actually remember. So in a prior life I did web design, web development while I was in college and I took on a client as a freelancer and we had back and forth through email and everything was documented. One thing led to another. We had a falling out. I went to small claims court to sue for the wages past due. Mm -hmm. And the judge mm -hmm. says, well, I'm not sure that this contract is enforceable. There wasn't a little statement on there that said this person has the authority to make these types of decisions. Oh, it's interesting. I did get a partial award, but I didn't get the full funds. At the end of the day, there were some technicalities that definitely bit me. Well, you, ra you raise a really interesting point, and that is also that the, the law will sometimes imply a contract where there is no written mm -hmm. un, you know, agreement. You know, there are certain things that we do that just by our course of action, our course of business establishes that you know, it's reasonable to expect or for the other side to have expected that there'd be compensation or that there would be a quid pro quo of some sort. And so sure. you know, implied contracts do exist and, and oral contracts exist as well. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So let's move on from that then. Sure. Uh, you know, we've signed the contract. We're continuing to do business mm -hmm. together. Let's go on one path that I think that you've got a lot of experience on. We're looking to advertise a product or service and maybe either directly or indirectly imply that we have sponsorship of a celebrity mm -hmm. or someone that is well known. How, what is the current case law for that? Well, I'm not going to cite you particular cases because sure. I think our audience would be bored and fall asleep very quickly. But, um, you know, the, the, the basic rule is, and this is true of whether it's a celebrity or a brand relationship or something like that. If you, if you employ, if you create the, the perception in the audience's mind that there's an affiliation, there better really be an affiliation, uh, a false designation of origin. Like, you know, if I say, um, you know, uh, if I call my podcast, the Coca-Cola podcast, uh, and Coca-Cola has nothing to do with it, they're going to sue me for trademark infringement or unfair competition or something, uh, because I'm misusing their brand. And the light, the same is true of a celebrity endorsement. If the, if you imply an endorsement and that doesn't exist, you're essentially trading on that person's, the value of that person's name to Im enhance the value of your brand. And so that is not okay. Uh, so in, in, and this varies from state to state, but celebrities do have a right and, and in fact, anybody in California, for example, has a right to control commercial use of their name or likeness. Now, that's not to say you can't talk about somebody by name, but if you, if you create the implication that there's that endorsement or if you say sponsored by or brought to you by, you know, those kinds of things, that's where you run into real trouble. Understood. So if, let's say we're doing a product photo shoot and there's a can of Coke in the background. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you need to blur that out? You know, the best practice would be yes, blur it out or, or okay. better yet, exclude it from the shot. And, you know, again, but, you know, if you were shooting a video and, you know, in your garage and you happen to have a bunch of old Coca-Cola signs and products and, you know, those kinds of things and you sort of a collector, 
that you know you're not using it as your brand it's just a it's just a referential uh, kind of use of the of the thing we, what we call a nominative fair use of the brand of the trademark and uh, really you know when we talk about brands we're talking about trademarks and service marks and w- yeah you just you know you don't want to create any confusion in the minds of the public of the consumers as to whether there's a an association or affiliation makes sense so there's i guess some understood amount of fair use that you can get away with mm-hmm. before it starts you start to imply that you're associated with that brand. Yeah. Well, so fair use is actually a copyright concept that comes okay. out of the first amendment and free speech and stuff like that. But this, the same principle of free speech does apply when we're using trademarks as again, as long as we're not using it in a confusing way to suggest some association. Is there any leeway given to you if you're not making money? You know, this is one of the most common sort of fallacies that people, again, in the copyright context, as well as trademark come up with is they, they somehow think that because they're not earning any money from it, there's no harm being done to the brand or to the person or to the material that's being taken and used. And the fact of it is it, that is not, it isn't, it isn't a major factor. Let's put it that way. In the context of copyright fair use, the nature of the use is a factor, but there's a bunch of other factors that have to be considered as well. So, no, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, no, I appreciate you dispelling some of these myths. So, as we get across them, feel free to jump in. It makes my job a lot easier when I have clients come in and they know what I'm, they know the rules already. And absolutely, no, I'm a huge fan of educating your client base. The last couple of companies that I worked at, we developed products, and it was probably half the effort that we spent was to educate our current clients. You touched on trade secrets a little bit. Can you get into a little bit more detail? Because the usually the next question that I get asked is, uh, when should I patent and should I patent or should it be a trade secret? The advice that I usually give mm-hmm. personally, and I'm, I'll admit that I'm a bit jaded on the patent system being an engineer, there's very few ideas that I would patent. I feel that there's so many products out there on the market that aren't patented. Mm-hmm. There's better ways of competing, whether it's through customer service or through marketing or something like that. If anything, I would maybe look at trade secrets or, you know, keeping your formula for whatever it is or your manufacturing method, uh, a a guarded secret over a patent. But um, of course, everything is case by case. And if you've got an idea that's market changing, if it's something that's going to make all the other competitors uh, scramble, obviously that's something that you need a patent. But we have so many patents out now that I feel are kind of frivolous. Well, you know, I think it's probably worthwhile for us to take a step back and 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 take a look at the at the spectrum of all these components of intellectual property of how everything fits together so that so that we're really clear what we're talking about. Trade secret is really the 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 whole reason that we talk about non-disclosure agreements because the basic rule is if you've got an idea which is generally not something that can be protected by any other form of intellectual property. Um, the only way to really keep it from being used by others is to keep it to yourself, keep it secret or have an agreement with the people you share it with that they will keep it secret and they won't use it for their own purposes without making some kind of a financial arrangement with you or a partnership or fun, you know, or, or whatever. And so that's the basis for if you're going to submit something to somebody, you get them to promise that they're not going to steal it. <laughs> right. So that's, so that's trade secrecy. Keep it secret. And this is, you know, the formula for classic Coca-Cola, the, the 11 herbs and spices recipe for, uh, Kentucky fried chicken. These are trade secrets. Um, what are some of the, there's other examples of these that, that come up with some frequency, but you know, 
so anybody who who's going to have access to that has to acknowledge basically that they're keeping it secret. Now, patent law protects inventions. So it's not just the idea, but it's the actual implemented iteration of the idea. And um, inventions can be processes and systems and formulae and things. Like that. So a formula for Coke or something like that might be if there's a mm-hmm. particular way it has to be put together in sequence to, to make it into Coca-Cola sure. and not explode in your face or something like that. Um, uh, and, and I, I sort of agree with you. I think Pat, the, the whole system some, is susceptible of abuse. And we saw a case in actually a podcast patent that was uh, uh, a problem a year or two ago where the owner of this patent for a serialized delivery of episodic content by uh, RSS feed, you know, claimed a patent on all of this. And everybody was worried that we were going to start having to pay royalties to this company and whatever didn't materialize and, and we're all good. But um, so, you know, susceptible of abuse, there are patent trolls who sort of grab stuff up and claim patents. You know, the good right. news is it's pretty expensive to file a patent. And and uh, so there is a bit of a barrier to entry. There's got to be something there, essentially. Um, copyright is the other sort of end of the spectrum where, you know, it, it, again, doesn't cover ideas. It covers the expression of ideas. So the way you express the idea of boy meets girl and they go off and have a life together and the way I do are two very different stories. And so we each could have a copyright, but that neither of us can stop someone else right. from coming along and telling a boy meets girl story. So there you have a, an example of that. And facts are also not protected. So telling a story about real events, there have been how many, how many different movies telling the story of the gunfight at the OK Corral, for example. Right. No, that, um, that's interesting. And then just to fill out the, the, the gaps, trademark covers the the unique identifier of brand. So the, the word or mark or symbol that is distinctive and becomes associated in the minds of the public with a particular brand. So if I say box of crackers with a red triangle in the upper corner, you know what brand I'm talking about without me ever saying the name, do you? Right. Don't you? Nabisco, just for those who are wondering. <laughs> um, or I, I say, you know, the, the most famous kind of chocolate cookie with a white cream filling. And we know it's Oreo, which happens to be a Nabisco brand. So there's two brands, two, two trademarks right there. So it has to be a distinctive identifier of goods or services, not generic or descriptive, but distinctive. So that's the sort of spectrum of the way things get protected for, for intellectual property. No, that's very interesting. So I've gone through some of these myself. Mm-hmm. What I advise people to do is if they don't know if they want to seek patent protection, to go ahead and apply for a provisional patent. And mm-hmm. that way, at least they have a year to test out the sure. market, bear fruit, then you're able yeah. to at least use some of the money that you should be getting in within that year to cover your cost of patenting. Yeah. But at the onset, whenever you create your brand or your company, there are probably some legal protections that you should have in place. Well, you know, I, yeah. So for anybody who's starting up, I think the fundamentals are figure out your, your financial structure and your business structure, make sure you have a... a a sound entity type in place or an alternative, which could be insurance to protect yourself from liability. If something blows up with the product, you don't want them coming along and taking your house away from you. Right. Right. Product liability insurance. Well, yeah, but also maybe a corporation or an LLC to insulate and and hold that product and, and all of the property related to that product. So God forbid, you know, someone gets hurt or needs to sue 
they sue the company and not you individually and your, your family and your house and things are, are safe. Um, so there's the entity level, form an LLC, form a corporation, whatever. The nice thing about entities is you can also use them as a financial vehicle by selling membership interests of an LLC or stock in the corporation to investors who would essentially fund some of the development of startup costs, whatever. Then you have partners and people to answer to, of course. So that's the, the flip side. But, um, and these entities also give you some, uh, sort of street cred <laughs> in a sense, not a lot these days, but you know, that counts and you go open bank accounts and all that and you buy insurance in the name of the company. Okay. So now you're building a, a business. The next step is to evaluate the assets that you're creating and decide patent, trademark, copyright, trade secret. What else can we do? And how do we make a business? Sure. All of the above. Yeah. Well, probably. <laughs> so out of those legal protections that you mentioned, what do you think is something that is feasible to do on your own? And when do you need to call and ask for help? You know, as a lawyer, I have a vested interest in, in helping people do these things. And so I will say, you know, I think you're always better off having a professional help you. But if money is an object and it, who, for, who, for, you know, for most of us, it is, let's face it. Um, I think that, you know, you can form a corporation using a, an online service that does the filings for you and things like that. Now it's going to be a very plain vanilla, normal corporation. And if there's anything unusual, either about your, your, your product category, the kind of, you know, if, if you're making a movie, you don't use a plain vanilla corporation because there's a lot about making movies that's sort of unique. And so that's my business. Um, you know, if you're making, you know, if you've invented a better mousetrap, you're probably okay starting a basic corporation using one of these online services. And then, you know, as you grow, that can be adjusted and fixed if there's any problems. Um, as far as uh, copyrights or do it yourself kind of a thing, if you, if you create, you know, write a book, create a, a video, film, music, you know, those kinds of things. Or if you, let's say you have a particular instruction manual that you want to protect so people can't use whatever it is in, in a different way. All of that can be done yourself. You go to copyright.gov and you, it's a terribly ugly and disorganized web form, <laughs> but it can be done by yourself if you're willing to spend the time. The good news is, you know, it's not that expensive to hire a professional to do that stuff because it's relatively quick and, and easy. Trademarks a little further on the spectrum of, of you sort of have to know what you're doing. Um, and so those of us that do it every day or every week kind of, you know, there's an economy of scale there, but a smart person who's got the time and not the cash, you know, go ahead and give it a try. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because when I went through to file a trademark, it asked if it was in use and that was a bit awkward because I'm filing it when mm -hmm. I'm launching my brand. Should I say that it's in use because technically it is online somewhere. So in order to be entitled to the protection of a trademark law, you have to have your word mark or your, your, your brand, your logo, those things have to be in use in commerce, actually in interstate commerce. So fortunately nowadays, putting something up on the web as an advertisement for a product or service pretty much counts as in use. Um, now, if the product hasn't officially launched yet, but you've got a website saying coming in November, you know, whatever, then the trademark office might take issue with whether it's really in use or not. But um, there is actually an opportunity to get a, uh, an intent to use trademark as well, which basically just sort of gets you into the system. And, and then you have six months after they approve it 
to prove you're now using it. And then you, there's actually renewals and things. So that's sort of what we recommend when it's not officially in the marketplace available for sale yet. So in a, in a, it's called an intent to use application. Um, so don't let that stop you, you know, again, but, but right. knowing which box to check is the, is the challenge. And the, the trademark office to their credit has done a really good job of making instructional videos and help documents and things like that, that you can, you know, you can navigate through the whole thing. But one of the problems is that their form times out before you finish watching the video. <laughs> so you then have to go back and so th there is a way to save your work periodically. And, and, uh, if you hit a stumbling block, I would recommend save it, download it and, uh, get your information and then proceed. So great. No, that makes sense. And for patents, I think you need a patent lawyer. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with that. So as an engineer, I've been hired by companies to work and design around existing patents, basically. And that destroyed my trust in the patent system. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Between that and, and some of the frivolous patents that I've had to work around that are arguably facts that have been patented, you know, this law of physics underwater, that stuff has just super frustrated me. And I, at least as an engineer, as, a, as a, someone that develops products, and I feel like the people that are really winning out in these types of patent wars, so to speak, are the ones that hold the most patents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that the patent becomes the asset that they're leveraging to, to earn money. You know, they don't have to have a lot of, uh, a lot of licensees paying them a little bit of money and, and they've got, you know, a revenue stream sure. <laughs> that can be uh, leveraged. Would you still advise a small time inventor to go ahead and grab a patent? Sometimes people don't have the ability to enforce it or protect it. Some people will pour their last $10,000 into getting that patent. Yeah. What is that right point viable for me to get a patent versus maybe I really need to focus on proving that I have a business or a product? You know, I think that's a really great question. And, and I don't know exactly the answer. I think it's going to be different for every situation, but I, I do think that, you know, spending your last, your last few bucks on something like getting a patent, if you don't have a business plan for what you're going to do with this asset, once you have the patent, you've got, uh, you know, you, you don't have a plan. There's no sense in, in spending that money. You, you might do better to spend some money figuring out the whether it's viable as a product or whether it fits into someone else's product and again that's where some trade secret kind of that's where maybe an nda makes sense sure. you've got a patentable thing you haven't yet registered the patent and if you make it public you won't be able to patent it so that's important an important component of this is that once the material is out there in the public if you haven't registered for patent you lose the opportunity to so and i'm, I'm not a patent lawyer per se but you know, that's sort of the extent of my knowledge on the subject. So you want to be really careful not to publish the technology until you've got a patent or whatever. So by sharing with a third party, you're publishing it unless you have that NDA. So that may be a valid reason why you must insist on an NDA is you've got a valid a patentable thing, but you haven't yet patented. Um, I've even heard that whether you have an NDA or not, that it, that might be considered public disclosure because you've offered it for sale technically. Well, but if you're offering it to sale to a, to a company that's going to incorporate it into a product, mm -hmm. you know, you're not saying, Hey, buy my thing. You're saying, Hey, let's talk about whether this is a viable joint venture or whether you want to license this technology. Uh, so, you, you know, it is, yeah, again, and, 
you know what I would really say here is the answer is spend a few hundred bucks and have a consultation with an experienced patent lawyer, really, um, who can advise you on that. You know, and yeah, there's that sense of, well, you know, if I go to a carpenter who's got a hammer, I'm sure it's going to look like a nail. Right. (laughs) But, but, um, you know, lawyers don't, don't get ahead by doing things that their clients don't really need or can't really justify financially. So, you know, find somebody you can trust and get some good advice and make sure there's a business behind it. You may, you know, it may be great to have this invention, but if nobody's going to ever use this invention, don't bother. No, I totally agree with that. I think, and it wasn't a leading question, but but what I (laughs) I usually advise people to do is to test the market first. And if, even if that means being really uh, vague about what your idea is, and that way there is no public disclosure, you can approach people to say it's in this space or in this industry or this, it's this type of product that solved this, this need without really yeah, disclosing no, I, the specifics. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really important to validate product ideas uh, as early in the game as possible. And that may just be by conducting surveys or by bringing in a focus group or something like that and get, letting them try the product. That doesn't count as publishing the, the technology. If you, if, you, if, you, if you create a prototype, of course, which is another expensive uh, adventure to sure. go down. But you know, if, if you've got something like that and you can bring someone who would normally use this and say, here, look what I've created. Is this something you would buy? Um, that can be a, a great way to validate. Again, check with the patent lawyer to make sure that's not going to get you into problems with registrability. Great. No, so all great tips. Well, actually, while we're on the topic, so you said check with a patent lawyer. What are the things to look for when you are choosing a lawyer for some of these topics? You type into Google, you type lawyer, my city. The first two pages are the people that have paid for the top Google ads or have the best mm-hmm. SEO. And you reach out to them. Some of them will reply. Some won't. Yep. The rates that you get back range from, and I've, I'm speaking from personal experience <laughs> talking to uh, some lawyers, they'll go anywhere from 150 an hour to let's say 500 an hour. That may or may not be representative of their experience and skill set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, true. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes the higher rate is tied to someone who's been in practice a longer time. And so at least in theory, they have more experience, whether that more experience translates into greater efficiency in getting the work done or just greater success in getting the work done is sort sure. of hard to say. But, you know, I'll tell you my own experience. I have Uh, I'm at the higher end of that range and the folks that come to me can pretty much count on me getting the job done either in less time or with less overall expenditure. Um, Even though a younger lawyer who's charging a third of my rate might seem cheaper, it's not, you know, so uh, this is not, in my view, one shouldn't skimp on legal fees on the hourly rate, focus on what it's really going to cost you. And, and you should ask a lawyer, Hey, what should I expect to be spending on this patent or this transaction or whatever it is we're doing? And if they can't give you a number, it means either they're afraid to tell you a number because it's going to be too high or too low, or they don't have the experience to know what it's really going to cost. And, you know, we can even do flat rates. You know, there's nobody, nobody forcing us to charge an hourly. So, you know, for things like trademark registrations, we do flat rates and, you know, there's an efficiency in some of these things. What do you look for in a lawyer? I think experience is is in the specific thing you're talking about. If you if you have a biotech patent, use a lawyer who's done some biotech patent work. If you have a mechanical engineering kind of a thing, then use someone who's got that experience. Now, the interesting thing is that in patent space especially, in order to become a patent lawyer, you have to demonstrate 
well, generally you have to demonstrate some experience and education in a technical field, engineering, biotechnology, science, hard sciences, those kinds of things, which is why I'm not a patent lawyer. I'm a bachelor of arts guy. <laughs> so, so, uh, you know, you want experience, you want understanding. And I would say some wisdom, you know, someone straight out of law school probably can file the patent for you, but I don't know whether they're going to give you the kind of advice you need early on in, in the game and, and really get you where you need to be. So again, spending a little more money, probably a wise investment in that regard. So you call up, you know, 10 people mm -hmm. and you sit down and have these consultations. Is it normal to expect these to be, uh, let's say a 30 minute consultation to be kind of free of charge because it's an opening consultation or is it something that you would normally charge for? Um, and now you're kind of out of pocket for the five or 10 people that you speak to. Uh, you know, I think that you should be able to narrow it down before you end up paying. So, you know, okay. you're going to, you're going to talk to people on the phone first and five or 10 minutes ought to be enough to tell you a lot. Um, you know, you should be able to describe in general terms what it is you're looking for. And really, uh, my guess is if you call 10 lawyers, six of them are going to say they're not that interested in it or, or going to seem not that interested. That's been my experience anyway. I, th yeah. I just thought it was my face. No, you know, I mean, the truth of it is... <laughs> It's too small of a job. It's too big of a job. It's not the right, right kind of a job for our firm or we're just too busy. You know, you're going to find a lot of that. And then you move on to the, the few who are actually willing to take a meeting. You can, hey, look, you know, is this a free consultation? And it's reasonable to ask for a free consultation so that they can pitch you the business or pitch the business to, you know, sell you on hiring them. If someone's not willing to do, I mean, this is from someone who actually does charge for consultation. I do short consultations for free. That's the get to know you stuff. But then if you want me to give sure. you real advice about your business, that's what I get paid for. And you know, absolutely. And that's, that's expected. Yeah. So, um, you know, if it, if it's a matter of someone has to actually take a look at your thing in order to decide, is it patentable? Um, it, it's a judgment call whether to expect to be charged and um, I think it's reasonable to expect to pay something, but it ought to be a fairly nominal amount. They, they'll know within a few minutes whether it's something that they can help with or not. And and uh, and then it comes down to personality connection. Do they, does this seem like somebody you can trust? All very good tips for sure. One of the first questions that people have when we start talking about patents into any mm -hmm. detail is, I haven't seen any patents around this space, so it must be okay. <laughs> and so I always tell people, to go speak to a lawyer. So lawyers and CPAs are the two people that I will not skimp on. I'm a huge fan of DIY, uh -huh. as you see behind me yeah. in my workshop. I've, I've, I do everything myself, even when it comes to business. I've tried to learn you know, marketing and sales and graphic design, but the accounting and the uh, law side, I definitely outsource to people with that knowledge because that one tiny mistake can bite you. And I'll tell you, you know, I, uh, it's interesting. I do my own taxes, but when I have a legal situation, I hire a lawyer and, um, and my other area where I don't DIY is plumbing. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, plumbing is one of those things where it either takes you 30 minutes or three days. Exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. While the water is pouring out of the sink, right? Right. Out of there. Well, all very great tips on how we can find a lawyer ourselves and what we should look for when forming our businesses. Is there anything that we've haven't covered so far that you think is a typical stumbling block for somebody that's a small business owner or they're just starting out? You know, there's a couple of things that we didn't really touch on that I think are worth considering. And that is if you're doing business online, there are some other components to all of this that you have to think about. Um, one of which is, you know, make sure you have your terms of service, your privacy policy, and you know, all of those kinds of things done properly. And it isn't 
smart to just copy someone else's. Even if they're in the exact same business as you, you're going to do things differently than they do. Or if, if you're smart, you're going to do things differently than they do. At least that's how you differentiate yourself in a marketplace. So you need to make sure that you're, you're, these are contracts after all, that they cover you properly. Um, insurance we've touched on earlier, you should definitely have insurance in place. And especially if you're online, there are, there are components to liability that come up only in the online space. Really? Well, well I think we things, need to get into that. Like, well, I mean, I guess copyright infringement and those kinds of things do sure. come up offline, but they're so much more common online. Um, if you are doing a business of, of any kind where people can submit content onto your website or onto a, a service that you operate, register your DMCA agent for service of process. You go to the copyright uh, website and type in DMCA agent and there's a form that you have to download and file. It costs about 130 bucks to file it. This gets you on your, your, that, and, and you have to identify the person that somebody writes to, to complain about a copyright infringement. And this basically gets you into the system, the DMCA system, so that if somebody wants to come after you, you, you basically what the DMCA says, this is the digital millennium copyright act. Basically what this says is if somebody has a complaint about copyright infringement, they have to send you a notice. And if you respond to that notice by taking down the material, then you are eligible for a safe harbor against copyright lawsuit. So as long as you have a clear, clearly stated policy that you enforce to do these things, you're okay. And if you've registered that person with your, uh, with, with the DMCA, with the copyright office, excuse me. So you know, don't do that. And someone uploads your something to your website, even in the comments of a, uh, on a blog, hmm. imagine this, you know, you have a blog and you're promoting your product in the blog and some bozo jumps into the comments section and pastes a big long quote from a movie into your thing. Technically copyright infringement, you've copied the dialogue of the movie, right? And you're the host of the thing. So who's going to, who are they going to come after? <laughs> right. Right. So they, they notify you, you take it down, you're, you're good. And, um, if you, if you don't have that registration and that policy in place, you can be sued for copyright infringement. So it's cheap and easy insurance. Yeah, for, fortunately, I don't have many comments on my blog. So, <laughs> well, that's fortunate or unfortunate, depending on your perspective. <laughs> no, no. Wow. That's really interesting. I didn't think that it applied to blog comments. I thought it was just for uh, crowdsourced sites or, you know, places where you've got a lot of user generated content. Well, it's generally, that's how we generally think of it. But I'm, my thinking is for 130 bucks to have that peace of mind and know that if some bozo posts a, a photo, for example, in your blog comments, you know, I mean, and yes, you can take it down on your own volition. Um, but you also don't want to be in that position of appearing to be an editor of content on your site because that puts you back into the liability. You know, you, you have that quote, red flag knowledge about it. So if you're going to allow comments on your blog and you're going to allow uploads and that kind of stuff, my, my feeling is have that DMCA notice taken care of. Very good advice. So the, some of the other things that we talked about, we, we talked about trade secrets, patents, copyrights, mm -hmm. trademarks, all things that are important whenever you're starting a business. What about something if you're already in business that might, you might be overlooking, whether it's agreements with suppliers or employment law? Well, I think as you expand your business and you start taking on employees, you open up a whole nother can of worms. Dealing with wage and hour issues, of course, um, unemployment issues. You know, if you fire somebody, obviously there's there's concerns about 
why you fire somebody and how you go about it, the, the, the normal human resources kinds of issues. I'm not qualified to really talk about all that other than to say you want to talk to people and get some good advice about that. Fortunately, there's lots of resources out there, the Small Business Administration and and uh, outfits like SCORE and, you know, the uh, Senior Corps of Retired Executives. Have you heard of them? Yes, I use them extensively in Houston yeah. and they're amazing. Those kinds of folks. And, uh, but also, you know, make sure your insurance is in place to cover them for workplace injuries and those kinds of things. And by the way, if you use volunteers or interns, make sure you have insurance coverage that will cover them because they may very well be treated as employees, even though you're not paying them. And the non-payment of interns has been an issue in the news and, and media a lot in the last couple of years as well. So get some good advice about these things. Employment situation. Um, Same else? thing about contract versus employee type relationships. Yeah. So that's an interesting, a uh, good point. Um, many of us think that, well, if we call somebody an independent contractor, we don't have to withhold taxes. We don't have to cover them with insurance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The truth is calling something so is not, does not make it so, you know, I can say the sky is orange, but it's not going to be orange. It's not most of the time it's not orange. So, um, calling somebody an independent contractor when they are really an employee and when they look like an employee to the outside world, chances are the government is going to think they're an employee and chances are somebody who gets hurt is going to think of himself as an employee. And the worst, worst case scenario is you've got this person treated as an independent contractor. You're paying them, you know, a lump sum without withholding taxes. You're not insuring for workers' compensation. You're not insuring for unemployment. And then they get hurt and they miss three weeks of work and you fire them. <laughs> right. Now you, you're getting sued for wrongful termination and the workers comp claim, but the workers comp insurance coverage is not going to cover it because you weren't treating this person as an employee, but the general liability insurance policy isn't going to cover it because they should have been treated as an employee. Sneaky. And if your company doesn't have a lot of cash and capital, now, even though you've got a corporation or an LLC or something like that, there are ways that they can sometimes access your personal assets. So, you know, it's, you got to be careful. Wow. The, right. That's very interesting. So I have a LLC myself, um, mm -hmm. and I try to definitely keep the uh, separation of assets and bank accounts and, uh, you know, sign all the contracts properly, you know, as member of LLC or manager of LLC. Sure. Let's, so let's talk about that a little bit, you know, piercing that veil. So to speak. That's the term. The legal term is piercing the corporate veil or the LLC veil. And yeah, the courts take a look at it. I mean, when it comes up and it fortunately doesn't come up that often, is this company really just an alter ego for the person? And if so, and, and the way we look at that is do they commingle their finances? You know, do, do, does he borrow from his personal account to cover a company bill? Does he, you know, whatever, does he pay for gas with the company credit card on a non-business trip or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and the more of that kind of stuff that exists, the more likely they are to pierce the veil and say, it's an alter ego. We're not going to, we're not going to distinguish the two and we're going to let them at your assets. Absolutely. <laughs> so again, make sure that you're working with professionals to make yeah. sure things are set up properly and you're right. not. And, and not having insurance in place is going to be another one of those factors that they look at. Well, you, you know, if you'd had insurance in place, you were acting like a business by having it. So 
all of those kinds of things. So you've brought up insurance probably four or five times now. The only insurance that I'm aware of personally is product liability insurance specific to products in certain industries. And it's basically, from what I understand, the rates are based on how much revenue you're making per year and the type of product it is. In other words, the likelihood of it injuring somebody. What are the some of the other types of insurance and what do you recommend is like the bare minimum that people should have whenever they just start? Well, I, I mean, I think there's a whole raft of different kinds of insurance that can apply. And we've already talked about uh, several of them. Workers' compensation to cover your employees against any injuries that happen while they're working. Um, general liability insurance is the stuff that covers a slip and fall on the premises or damage to some, you know, somebody's property while they're on, you know, while it's on the premises. Um, d- damage to the premises itself could be covered by a, a general liability policy. You might want to have, uh, you know, fire and earthquake and those kind of coverages to cover you against losses suffered as a result of a disaster. Right. Um, and I'm not, I'm not here to sell insurance, but you know, I'm just sort of thinking off the top of my head here. Um, business interruption insurance is another one where if there's a flood or a fire or an earthquake or something that stops business from happening, maybe it's a strike or a riot or who knows what, um, you might be able to have some insurance to keep things going, keep people on the payroll so you don't lose your whole, your whole staff, uh, if you have a protracted delay in getting things done. Um, products liability coverage, as you said, will depend on the product and the size of the business, the scope and say, you know, sales and so on. Is there such thing as a general liability insurance for a business? Oh yeah. In terms of you do something to harm somebody in some capacity professionally? Uh, that might not be under the general liability coverage. I'm, I'm okay. going to get to that. So what you're talking about is sort of an errors and omissions okay. insurance. This is where it, you should have gotten a license to use a piece of copyrighted or patented or trademarked sure. material and you didn't. Um, you can you can have coverage against that lawsuit, so you get a defense of that case and so on, and that will also depend on the nature of your business and how much of this kind of stuff you're doing, and and it can also cover, um, um, you know, uh, well, just any kind of if you needed a license or a permit and you needed uh, you get fined or you know they may be able to get a defense there too, and um, and then there are the there are sort of umbrella policies that will cover any gaps that come up. Now you can, you can over insure. It's definitely possible to have too much insurance where all your money is going that, out. That, to that's where my mind is right now. Cause my head is kind of spinning because I'm thinking, gosh, I need five or six yeah. policies now. And is that something that I can afford with minimal revenue? Well, you know, I think that as I've said before, a lot of the time, what's important is that you have a talk with an insurance agent, someone who knows this stuff and can really take a look at your business and, give you a strong recommendation of the things that, and, and you can ask that person, Hey, prioritize these for me. What do you think is, you know, obviously if I've got employees, I got to have workers comp, right? And if I've got a facility, if I've got a factory or a, a warehouse, I've got to have liability coverage because the landlord's not going to let me Absolutely. do it without it. Um, do you need, you insurance if you're in the business of making a product and you're, you know, inventing it from the ground up and you're very confident that you're not stepping on somebody else's patent? Probably not. I mean, you could probably get away with it for a while without it. And, you know, it sort of depends where you are in the phase of your business and all those kinds of things too. Um, if you're using vehicles to drive your stuff around to deliver your product, you need vehicle insurance. Um, and if you have, as you said, if you're putting a product into the marketplace that has any potential to harm somebody, you need that product's liability coverage. And, uh, 
you know, you may not think that your product can harm somebody, but someone will find a way. Well, let's face <laughs> it. If you, if you're in the business of cupcakes, you can food poison somebody, of course. Sure. Um, someone can choke the, on a sprinkle. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I'm sort of trying to think of an example of a business where there couldn't be any potential product liability and maybe in the sense of some kind of a really innocuous information product or something like that, you might avoid that, but that's where you get into, you know, insurance errors and omissions because maybe you're infringing somebody's copyright or, or, um, stepping on somebody's brand or something like that. So it's always going to be something <laughs> and it's just a matter of get the, so back to the advice, talk to an insurance professional, ask them to prioritize. If you only had a limited budget for this, which of these things would you be buying first? And which one can you think I can live without? And follow those priorities. Very great advice. And actually while you were talking, I thought about something else that maybe we didn't cover mm -hmm. uh, from a legal perspective. So I know that online, especially if you make any type of statements regarding income, they have to be phrased a certain way for the FTC. Oh, right. Yeah. The FTC, um, guidelines for advertising and endorsements are really important. This, uh, this applies both to endorsements where you have a, you know, celebrity or someone uh, suggesting that they're endorsing your product. They better have actually used the product and it, it better be a, a legitimate, bona fide, non-fraudulent endorsement. Never make mis misleading statements, um, in your marketing and sales, you know? And, uh, yeah, if you, if you're, if you're citing specific performance, Revenue markers or performance and those kinds of things. It's important to have the right disclaimers in place. And we've all seen these disclaimers, you know, um, results not typical or, or uh, your, you know, your experience may vary or those kinds of things. I mean, you want a good example of it. Type in a Google search for acai berry extract and why, look at all how all the ads are, are structured and all those disclaimers. There's your <laughs> template. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Although some of those folks have gotten in some big trouble, actually. All very good help. I feel like, you know, in the last 50 minutes, we've probably rushed through some very important topics that we could spend even more time on. But it's basically been the most enjoyable conversations I've had in a lawyer ever with. So uh, thank you for sitting down with us and talking to us about a lot of these topics that are all very important when uh, running a small business. Um, well, it's really been my pleasure. Um, is there, do you have any parting thoughts of wisdom or uh, tips that you can give to small business owners? Well, you know, I, I think the, the biggest tip I want to give is use common sense. If it feels like there's something not quite right, that's probably the case. Don't convince yourself otherwise. Listen to your intuition about these things and seek and obtain advice about everything. Off of the online forums? <laughs> and well, you know what? The online forums are a decent starting right. place because you know, let's face it, it's going to be 1130 at night when you think right. of this thing that you have to know the answer to or you're not going to sleep. Right. <laughs> right. So go and do the online research and then take it the next step further. If you think it's something you should talk to a lawyer about, send an email to a couple of lawyers, ask for, you know, a free consultation or ask them, see if they have any information online. A lot of us put a lot of invaluable information up online as a way of educating the, the, the public. And, um, you know, that's what, and, and if you need an accountant, seek an accountant. If you, you know, if you need a dentist, <laughs> see a dentist, uh, don't try to fix your own, you know, broken tooth. Right. So where can people find you if they want to get more information and where are you licensed to practice if they'd like to work with you personally? 
So I am a licensed California attorney. I'm in Los Angeles, California area, and um, but the whole state is fair game. And you can find me at firemark.com. My name is Gordon Firemark. It's F-I-R-E-M-A-R-K.com. Um, you want to hear my podcast? The, the main one is entertainmentlawupdate.com. And um, one is, well, one is actually not a, not yet in existence, <laughs> but I'm looking at my uh, checklist of things to do for the next week or two. Um, first one is I have a, uh, an ebook for podcasters and bloggers called the podcast blog and new media producers, legal survival guide okay. and uh, podcastlawbook.com is the uh, location for that. So anybody who's interested in the online and, and really it covers all that online stuff that okay. we talked about. Um, the other one is a, a negotiate anything course. And that is at firemark.com slash negotiate. Um, what else <laughs> on most social media G firemark. Great. And we're going to have all those links in the show notes. So awesome. thank you again very much. All your uh, tips are, are hugely appreciated. And I know that at least this gives people a, a good introduction of what they should be looking out for and some of the pitfalls they should expect from starting their own business. So thanks again for coming on the show. Oh, well, thank you. And by, oh, one other thing, um, anybody has questions they'd like to submit, I have a YouTube channel at firemark.tv. And if you go to firemark.com slash questions, you can submit your questions. And if it's in my wheelhouse, I'll try to give an answer online. That's perfect. Well, thanks again, Gordon. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And that's all I've got for today. Thanks for listening. I put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash episode nine. Join me in two weeks for another new episode. If you like this episode and you want to see more like it, or even if you want to see something completely different, please leave me a review on iTunes by going to theproductstartup.com slash review. I really appreciate your support. I read all the comments and questions and I try to incorporate them into future episodes. Reviews also help me get great guests on the show. So I'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Valitza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com. Your guide to getting there. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end -end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.